This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Wednesday, November the 29th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, a whole bunch of technology talk, including the Access Now app expanding their presence through a new part details. And AMI Audio is hosting special programming this weekend to celebrate International Day of Persons with Disabilities. Technical producer Jacob Shemansky gives you the scoop. And protests that caused a shutdown at the Saskatchewan legislature last week have prompted security changes. Journalist John Lepke will give you the latest on that story. That and so much more heading your way over the course of the next couple of hours. Thank you for spending part of your Wednesday with me. Lots of technology and government regulation makes up today's top story, starting with Finance Minister Krisha Freeland pushing back against the idea that the federal government is wavering on its January 1st timeline for implementing a new digital services tax. The 3% tax would apply to foreign technology companies that operate in the Canadian market. Lisa Laporte has more. Language in last week's fiscal update suggested the government wanted some flexibility in the timeline for when the tax would go into effect. Freeland insists the government's position on the controversial measure hasn't changed, although she didn't specifically say whether the tax would take effect early next year as originally planned. The 3% levy aimed at foreign digital services companies that profit off Canadian audiences is deeply unpopular in the U.S., where critics say it unfairly targets the U.S. tech sector. Lisa Laporte, The Canadian Press. In a related story, Rogers Communications says online streaming companies should be forced to contribute 2% of their annual Canadian revenue to support Canadian and Indigenous content. Michelle Zalekian explains. The company told a CRTC panel some of the money collected from streamers like Netflix should be directed to a temporary news fund to help subsidize private TV and radio news stations. Rogers says it's losing subscribers to online streamers and wants more flexibility to compete. It's the second week of the CRTC's public consultations in response to the Online Streaming Act. The commission is exploring whether streaming services should be asked to make an initial contribution to the Canadian content system and whether this would help level the playing field with local companies that are already required to support Canadian content. Michelle Zedekian, The Canadian Press. Staying in the world of technology, I told you there'd be lots of tech conversation on the show today. Microsoft President Brad Smith is sharing thoughts about artificial intelligence and regulation. Smith thinks that drastic concerns about AI are a bit overstated. We don't see any risk in the coming years, you know, or the next decade that somehow AI is going to pose some kind of existential threat to humanity. But number two, let's solve this problem before the problem arrives. Smith believes that humans still have to retain a control over the technology. 
Every movie in which technology imposes an existential threat ends the same way. Human beings turn the technology off, have an on-off switch, have a safety break, ensure that it remains under human control. Smith thinks that Canada could play a leading role in research and regulation. If there is a government that I think has a tradition on which it can build to adopt something like this, I think it's Canada. I hope it'll be the first. It won't be the last if it's the first. Specifically, Smith pointed to a strong tech sector and academic hubs across the country. That's your look at the news. Here come the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Yesterday, there was a whole bunch of holiday talk. So I asked you, what is the best low-cost holiday gift? 84% of you said baked goods. I knew food would do well. I didn't know food would do that well. 84% of you. 8% of you said a card, and 8% of you said crafts. A nice write-in here by Brett on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. This is a great one. Quality time. Spending time with the people that you love. That's a great one as well. Today's Daily Poll relates to a whole bunch of those news stories that I just shared with you. Big tech and Canadian culture. How do you think big technology companies are impacting Canadian culture? In a good way, in a bad way, or not at all? You could probably get me to answer any of these as my feeling and thought on this question. That's what I think makes it a good question. But the one thing I'll say that big tech has done, if you think about social media and you think about an organization like Google and YouTube, I'll go specifically to YouTube, there is a democratization of voices. And you might not love every single one of those voices that gets democratized, but the overall idea that there's no longer some kind of gatekeeper on thought or opinion in this country is a good thing. There are all kinds of regionalities and opinions and perspectives that could not be easily distributed before, so I am taking what it could be perceived as the controversial stance that big tech has influenced Canadian culture in a good way. Laura Bain, what do you think? Oh boy, I think I need an I don't know category. I'll just preface my comments by saying I don't feel very informed about big tech and culture in Canada. Um, I will say, like, I the one thing that kind of jumped out to me was thinking about as big tech companies integrate accessibility kind of either because they're forced to or they make the decision to um, and universal design features into their products. I think that that does become a part of the culture. I mean, certainly it moves us more towards our goals of um, the Accessible Canada Act and being fully accessible. Um, you know, I was thinking back to when I had my first cell phone, I'm dating myself here and it was a flip phone and I couldn't read the read the menus or send a text or do any, anything really other right. than make a phone call on it and i think that people thought that was fine people thought well yeah of course you're you're blind you can't use a phone that's just unfortunate that's part of it and i think that as companies um kind of apple and now android phones all have accessibility features people sort of understand it more from that social perspective of like oh yeah no that's a problem if the phone isn't accessible so i think they have the capacity to influence our thoughts on kind of access in a in a positive way 
And and I'll, I'll stay with that vein of positivity, just some throwing into uh, Alex Smythe over here for his thoughts on the question as well. If you think about the conversation that was had with AODA chair David Lepofsky last week about sidewalk safety in Toronto, specifically a video that the Alliance put together to show where some bike lanes were causing accessibility concerns for pedestrians, it used to be if you wanted to share that concern, you needed a local radio station, a local TV station, a national TV station, a newspaper, take your pick to actually say, oh, that story is interesting. We want to cover that. Whereas now they have thousands of views on that video off their own accord without needing some kind of gatekeeper or middleman. So, Alex, for all the toxicity that I will admit exists in the digital space, for some of the problematic features that exist inside a lot of social media applications, or maybe applications more broadly, (laughs) I still think there are some really positive outcomes when you think about culture as a broad-based idea. Yeah, so I'm flip-flopping between in a good way and a bad way, Dave, and and I want to focus in on content as, as you did in your first response. And you know, in some of the news stories you were playing, it was all uh, talking around the percentage and representation of Indigenous and CanCon content on big media. And I think that is something that's always needs to be in top of mind for, for Canadians and any broadcaster that wants to operate in this, this country. Because if we don't protect that, if we don't ensure there's some level of Canadian content on our airways, on our, our TV screens or through our streaming devices... We, we run the risk of being drowned out by just the endless, unlimited, uh, you know, content coming from the U.S. And, and that's always been that struggle that Canadians have. You know, you want to get all the American uh, content available, but you also want to have something that is made at home with and, and made in Canada or about Canadians. And you don't get that with the American production. So there there is a danger with that. Now, there is a democratization, as you mentioned, YouTube. It's great. You can, as a viewer, can go and search out whatever you want. There are no barriers. There are no gatekeepers in that regard. But the there is that kind of underlying hidden gatekeeper in the fact that there are algorithms. And algorithms you really don't have much control over. You don't necessarily know how they operate. So you're being influenced in ways that you aren't fully aware of. Now, it could lead you down some some great pathways into find great content. And if you start searching out Canadian content specifically or American content or or Asian, European, you can really go into these kind of new pockets. But it can sometimes be hard to get out of those. So I, I think because of these algorithms that are in place, I'll say a bad way. But there's also a level of intentionality that makes yeah. it good. So I, I'm kind of right in between those two. I like the word intentionality there, Alex, because in these conversations, I think sometimes there's a bit of pearl clutching that thinks, oh, Canadian uh, culture has been under threat by technology only in the last three years. But if you think about where the initial Canadian technology, uh, Canadian content protections came into place, it was in the inception of radio and American radio stations broadcasting across the Great Lakes and Canadian musicians and artists wondering, oh gosh, like we need to do something here to make sure our art does not get overrun by this radio, these radio broadcasts coming from south of the border. So any kind of technology 
technological evolution has always prompted some kind of revision of the Broadcast Act in Canada. So, so there is like there, there is something that sort of is a continuity here of a long-standing, decades-long conversation. I also think that sometimes people are a little overdramatic in the way they state these things. That oh gosh, they're, they're just going to start uh, putting Canadian content at the top of your YouTube and, and Netflix algorithm, and that's not fair. I've always been this person who believes in drop-down menus and believes in, like, well-organized menus. And frankly, if the third or fourth tab on my YouTube or my Netflix was clearly labeled Explore Canadian Content, Spotify, Netflix, YouTube, take your pick, and was clearly labeled, hey, explore this interesting Canadian content that's being platformed here, I actually see that as a benefit. I know some folks would say, oh, you're just going to put it in isolation and people will scroll past. I actually disagree. I think there's an, a real appetite in Canada, Alex, for Canadian content. Yeah, and as you say, it, it allows people to be aware of how they want to search, how they want to explore content, especially online. And so by having it that it's explicit, hey, if you want to explore Canadian content on your own dime, on your own leisure, this is the way you could go about doing it. I, I agree. I think that would be a, a phenomenal idea. And you see some of these streamers, but it's mainly the ones that are developed within Canada, like the Craves, like these other yes, broadcast yeah. networks that are already in there. They they have those Celebrate Canada uh, sections because that is part of their mandates. I would love to see that more with the Netflix's, Amazon Primes mm-hmm. and, and all the, the other streamers. And and then I think a lot of people would, would be a lot more comfortable and, and a less afraid of the scary big tech, especially when it comes to media streaming. (laughs) Yeah, big time. All right, that's a really thoughtful way to start what's going to be quite a bit of technology conversation today. Uh, Access Now, Mayan Ziv, the founder, is going to stop by in about an hour and a half to talk about some interesting developments there. I've got a story about the online gaming space and tech trends today with Mike Dubusky. So the technology conversation does not end here, but the daily poll does come to an end, at least in terms of what I'm going to share in this moment. You can still share your thoughts, though, at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a ring. 1-866-509-4545. 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, International Day of Persons with Disabilities is this Sunday. Sunday? Sunday. Talk like a human, Dave. AMI-audio is hosting some special programming to mark the occasion. Technical producer Jacob Shemansky gives you the scoop. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in streaming audio at amiplus.ca. Lots of ways for you to get in touch with the show. Things that you like, things that you didn't. Doesn't matter. We have thick skin. Social media, lots of channels available to you at Accessible Media on Twitter slash X, at Accessible Media on TikTok. Why not tag the network on a little video? Let your face be seen and your voice be heard on TikTok at Accessible Media. If you prefer Instagram or Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. is where you find those two points of contact at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook and Instagram. If you feel like really typing out your thoughts, maybe writing a letter 
you can't actually mail it to us, but you can send an email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a call, 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. I don't mind how you do it. I just want to hear your thoughts. Like I said, no matter what you hear on the show, if it rubs you the right way or the wrong way, ruffles your feathers or gives them a good stroke, I want to hear what you think. So chime in. 1-866-509-4545. Welcome back. It's Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. International Day of Persons with Disabilities is on Sunday. AMI-audio will be having some special programming starting at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. The special will feature some familiar voices and big ideas. Jacob Shemansky is a technical producer with AMI-audio, and he's got more info. Hey, good morning, Jacob. Good morning, Dave. How's it going? I am doing great. Nice to finally chat with you on the air on the mighty airwaves of AMI-tv. You and I have shared a little space on AMI-audio before as part of the book review, but you are a man who wears many hats, and Mm -hmm. you uh, did a big part in putting this special together. What's the core idea behind this special? Yeah, so that's right. Um, The IDPD, the International Day of Persons with Disabilities, is happening on December 3rd. The main idea here is to celebrate, ponder, and just really probably have a good thing means to us. And how it's really benefited the disability community, not just in Canada, but around the world. And there's a lot of ways to do that, but thankfully you've taken a very focused approach here utilizing the Net Zero Project. Yeah, that's right. So the Zero Project is a project that was initiated by an Austrian NGO called the Essel Foundation. It has a lot of money behind it. And basically what it's doing is it's asking all sorts of organizations from around the world to submit their programs and initiatives that seek to improve the lives of persons with disabilities from around the world. And it's, it truly is international. There were over 500 submissions. Ooh. They call the submissions solutions because that's what they are. It's very solutions-based. And some of them are coming from Japan, Cameroon, Vietnam, Brazil, Denmark, all over the world. So you started with 500, created a short list of about 150, and then finally narrowed it down to 75. And those 75 are all going to be celebrated at the Zero Convention happening in uh, early January, I think, in Austria. And mm. AMI-audio is also going to be there. Yeah, it's really amazing, kind of the ongoing coverage that AMI-audio uh, spearheaded initially by Andy Frank, but mm-hmm. now the whole crew has been uh, working on over the course of the last couple of years with the uh, with the Zero Project. Okay, 77, uh, 75 solutions, mm. initiatives. Uh, w- we'll be here for the rest of the hour if we try to go through <laughs> all of those. Yeah, but right. what are a few that kind of stand out to you? Because you're going to take a little time to profile every single one of them, at least for, you know, a minute or so during the the broadcast, but what are a few that stood out to you? Yeah, that's right. We're going to be covering every single one of them. Uh, one of them I thought was really interesting was the White Hands Chorus initiative in Japan. It's a chorus for children with disabilities. It initially started as uh, a chorus for uh, children that were hard of hearing, and it grew to be a, a pretty big organization that did so for not just children that were hard of hearing, but of all sorts of disabilities, blind or, or mobility issues. 
Um, but it's really cool. The way they perform is they perform alongside a professional orchestra, and uh, a bunch of the kids are singing, and a bunch of the kids who are hard of hearing are doing sign language along with the lyrics, because it's often mm. operatic. And they wear these white gloves with LEDs on the tips. And apparently, it's not just popular because it's tokenistic. It's genuinely a really beautiful performance. I like that. Yeah, no yeah. doubt the arts and culture space is, is an important one where that's that's one of the key battlegrounds for inclusion and anything you can do to, uh, to offer meaning and opportunity for young people is a good one. Yeah, and you need meaning. Like, you need to have something to strive for. And this those enriching experiences that even just beyond the basics of having access to education, for example, that just goes a long way to have a happy and fulfilling life. But there were other solutions that do speak to the more critical issues. Mm -hmm. Like in Ukraine, the uh, CRS, uh, I forget the full name. Um, it's an organization that teaches kids how to um, learn how to do graphic design and video editing very specifically but also how to navigate the freelancing space. Because if you've ever done freelancing, half the battle is knowing how to play the game of freelancing. Oh, yeah, big time. <laughs> oh, big time. Yeah, and, and I think that's what's really neat here. Again, you just cited an example from Ukraine, an example from Japan. It speaks to the international lens that the Zero Project is all about. It speaks to the international, in the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. You're someone who made a move this year from Ottawa to Toronto, and you and I have talked before about how those cities are different in terms of accessibility, and we can definitely apply either a provincial, city, municipal lens to the Canadian experience, listen, you can go just a bit south of Toronto to Buffalo. I'm, I'm, I'm going down there in a couple weekends. And just the amount of accessibility information about the places that I'm going feels drastically different than Canada because of the Americans with Disabilities Act. All of that stuff is laid out on hotel websites. All that stuff is laid out on the arena's website in a way that, like, it's just not as easy to find in Canada. And that's just our neighbors south of the border. Mm -hmm. Taking that international, international approach is a totally different perspective to add to the conversation. Yeah, like, disability does not discriminate. There are people with disabilities all over the world, and there are policy differences between Canada and India. There are policy differences between India and China. And there are also attitudinal differences between all sorts of places that stem from culture and religion. It's, it's different everywhere, and I think it's important to recognize that the issues that we have here are not the same issues that happen elsewhere in the world. And yeah. Disability is everywhere, and there are solutions needed. The solutions that are needed are different around the world. Yeah, the, the, the disability as a concept is not a monolith, right? right? You and I That's are right. both members of the blindness community. Mm. We don't have the same exact needs. We might have some That's some right. common experiences. We might have some shared experiences, like not being wild about the uh, young and blur uh, TTC station. <laughs> we might share that in common, but like, but in di but in different ways. Yeah, no, that's right. That station is a mess. <laughs> they did their best. <laughs> they're, they're doing what they can, and sometimes you just have to follow the crowds and hope oh for the best. Uh, Jacob, the other component of the show that's really interesting is it's going to feature some familiar voices, including mine, just sharing some overall perspectives. So who do you have on deck from the AMI family? The AMI family? Well, I don't think there's anybody in AMI-audio that didn't touch this project. Um, so I asked quite a few people uh, within AMI-audio that live with disabilities to talk about one simple question. What are your thoughts on the international disabilities? And that's a 
tricky question to ask because it it often elicits some mixed feelings. It, it's hard to parse what that means to a lot of people. And yeah. I think with some really intelligent people like Amy Amantia and Ginny Boulevard and uh, Megan Gilmore, that comes on your show pretty regularly, mm-hmm. with some very well-articulated thoughts that I, I had never thought of before. And they did a great job at um, putting to words a lot of things I think people haven't really considered before. The other thing I asked is, what are some steps that can be taken to tangibly improve the life of persons with disabilities? Like, what are the most pressing issues that need to be fixed, and how do we fix them? Now, I know that's a tall question, basically <laughs> asking, can you fix disability issues? But people did a bloody good job. Well, that, that's the one that I tackled specifically. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not going to give it away here, although I think anybody who watches or listens to the show every day would have a sense of the issues that I touched on and tangible improvements. Right. But I do think <laughs> like that was such a great question because it's one thing to sort of say, hey, it's a day to celebrate disability identity, and that, that's, that's a good thing, right? But I think at, ultimately there needs to be a goal, and the goal is to meaningfully improve people's lives. And I think that's just such a phenomenal question. Even though it's a big order, it's a tall one to ask people. In fact, I'm going to borrow that on the day poll on Friday, <laughs> just so you know, to pull back the curtain a little bit. <laughs> well, I, I think it's important to to see that this program, this special, which is airing from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. on AMI-audio uh, Eastern Time, is very positive. It's pragmatic and it's solutions-based. Mm. It's not whinging. It's not, it's not about airing out your dirty laundry. It's really looking forward and being pragmatic and forward-looking about this. Jacob, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing the broadcast on Sunday. Even with all my power and authority in this company, I couldn't (laughs) get a sneak preview. Uh, Jacob, thank you for this. Have a great day. Yeah, thanks for having us. That's Jacob Shemansky, technical producer with AMI-audio. You can catch AMI-audio's special programming for International Day of Persons with Disabilities this Sunday, December the 3rd from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up next, the holiday season can be a hard time for some people, and Kamozi has tips on how you can cope with feelings of anxiety during the season. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The holiday season is in full swing. For a lot of you, it's a time of joy and excitement, but I'm sure there are some of you who are also finding this time of year to offer up a lot of stress and anxiety. Disability rights advocate Ann Kamosi wants to discuss how the holidays can bring mixed feelings for folks inside the disability community. Hey, good morning, Ann. Good morning, Dave. So, how are you today? I am. I'm doing pretty well. I, I'm probably Good. one of these people who is not a full blown Grinch, not a full blown Scrooge, but I probably lean a little bit closer onto the side of the holidays. Leave me feeling a, a little black, especially like this far out from them. I think there's like too much holidays too early uh, in this world. But how are you feeling as uh, the the calendar approaches the holidays? Well, kind of the same. I, you know, as a young person, I loved Christmas, but as a 
disabled adult, I often have to really fight feelings of loneliness, isolation, feeling left out. But not only that, um, for me, I have um, a brain injury, which affects my vision and hearing, which is uh, dramatically affected by too much sensory input. And that's a problem at this time of year. So, so why, why do you think that is scratch a little deeper at that? Is it, is it sort of the pressure of wanting of, of people wanting to engage in all this holiday madness and holiday rush, or is it something even a little more subtle than that? Well, I think it's a combination of a lot of things. First of all, it's the darkest time of the year. December 21st is winter solstice, the shortest and darkest day of the year. Um, but I think people with disabilities, we face a lot of specific challenges. For example, uh, physical barriers and inaccessible environments, things change. Like I went into a, a store that I go into all year and an aisle that I normally can get down was blocked by Christmas displays. And there's, so there's more physical barriers. You know, everywhere you go is more crowded. Spaces are filled up. Um, there are many holiday events that are just simply inaccessible to me. Um, you know, transportation can be different because of holiday schedules. Um, I think sensory overload, as I mentioned, can be a huge issue because the season often involves increased noise and lights and crowded spaces, which can be overwhelming for many of us, not to mention making navigation difficult. Mm. But also, I think we many of us have financial constraints, medical and disability specific costs, you know, constrain our finances. And there's a pressure to, to give gifts and and there's really still a lack of accommodation and awareness for disabilities, which results in a lot of exclusion, I mm. think, from holiday activities. Yeah, so I, it's a combination. I, I think about a contradiction that almost exists there. And I, I'm not saying that, that you're wrong in identifying the contradiction, but that you can simultaneously feel a sense of loneliness, but also a sense of obligation of socialization. Because I am someone who does not mind socialization on my terms, but the idea of being in a loud, crowded room with, in some cases, people that I barely know, that doesn't sound like a good time to me, but I also don't want to sit by myself alone on a Friday night. Yes, but I find often even when I go to that crowded space, I'm alone in the corner because that's the only place my chair can fit. Mm. And people are navigating around the room, but I can't do that. So you're right. It's a contradiction. There is a lot of pressure. Some people have family pressure too and you know there it's it's a very and sometimes you know families are complex. There's a lot of, you know, hidden things that are affecting us. And at the same time, you know, every day we get up and we have to navigate the world with our disabilities. That's hard enough. But when you add that holiday over, you know, overlay to it, I, I think it's it, it's a real potential for us to get overwhelmed, at least for me, and get anxious. And so I really have to fight, you know, to do that to kind of stay stay in the level. Yeah. I so so let's talk about the fight and some of the coping mechanisms to for the po purpose of being proactive, pragmatic and positive. How do you deal with the holiday anxiety? Well, for me distraction is always, 
you know, a thing, not focusing on the barrier, but trying to focus on something that is positive for me. So, you know, I try I creativity we've is part of my DNA. So I try and make holiday gifts and cards rather than spending money because I don't have that extra money. I spend a lot of time in my studio and I, you know, sometimes I can be just doodling for hours and, and um, trying to create things that are colorful and give me joy in life. I often paint things from the summer or um, flowers and things that are bringing me life and you know you the brain is a very powerful computer and you can distract it with these things and you know I'm a visual artist but music theater being in a choir anything that can take you out of yourself and and um, I, I think nature is really important too I can't always get out but I look out my window and I you know try and look at what I see and I, I even if I can't see it as well as I once could see it I try and take photographs of it I try and like watch the sky try and take myself away from the holiday stimulus I don't play Christmas music on my music list I occasionally buy myself flowers <laughs> and try and focus on flowers and like sending myself flowers and it's an it's a it's a nice thing and 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 don't forget if you make christmas gifts it's better for the planet too so I try and focus on what is my ethic and not try and focus on any ethics that are imposed on me. Mm. Uh, if that makes any sense. No, no, <laughs> it, it, it totally makes sense. I mean, there's a couple things there, right? The idea of leaning into your creativity and still getting into the kindness of the season, but doing it on your terms, cards and crafts, right? Those are some of the best low to no cost gifts you can give people that still showed you were thinking about them. It still showed you devoted your time to them. And that is kindness. And that's what the season is supposed to be about. Whether people want to attach whatever else they want to attach to it kindness is supposed to be a key component and you also talked about the eco-friendly or the green friendly side of things because christmas can also be a very 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 wasteful time i got a beautiful gift bag last week from someone and then i was thinking to myself what on earth am i going to do with this bag i don't need this bag but it did not go in the garbage in because when i give somebody <laughs> else a gift around the holiday season i'm reusing that bag so i may be cannibalizing some thoughts you have here but what are some suggestions on maybe being a little bit more eco-conscious and green around the holiday season well yeah i think you're on the right track you know, I mean, first of all, I don't want to sound like the Grinch here, but holiday lights, I think, have become a very overdone thing. They use an incredible amount of energy. I think we have to scale back. We have to get back to a more like leaner, greener way of living. If you're going to put up lots of lights, like don't leave them on all night so that when you wake, somebody said to me, well, when I wake up in the morning, I want to see my Christmas tree lit. And I thought, oh, heavens, that seems a little bit selfish in terms of what you're 
ecological footprint is. Um, you talked about kindness, and I like to think about this time of year as being a time of gratitude as well, mm. and to, to show gratitude to the people that helped me all year. And so, you know, giving a waste-free nature-loving gift, like tickets to a concert, I give coupons to my grandchildren so they can... Um, you know, cash in a coupon to learn something from me or have a meal with me. I'm still, my, my granddaughter said, I didn't cash in my coupon for a free <laughs> meal with you. I better come over and do that before I get more coupons. <laughs> so you know, it's kind of fun. Gifts like tickets to a concert um, are a great idea. And something that I try and do when I do have some extra money is I donate to the food bank, but I do it in someone else's name. Mm. And I send them a card and say, thanks for all you did to help me this year. I donated $10 to the food bank in your name. It's a small thing. Um, most importantly, though, I think shop locally and um, support small businesses and artists and people in your community, farmers markets, um, eliminate and reduce how much meat you you eat. Um, if you're having people over, Dave, you'll love this one. Turn down the heat because people generate a lot of heat. You can oh, save electricity yeah. <laughs> when you have a room full of people. <laughs> uh, and and, um, and I literally don't turn the heat on in my apartment. I, I live in a building, right? So I don't. I, I actually don't turn the heat on. It's currently at 25 degrees in there. I'm trying to find a way to get the air conditioning on this time of year, i.e. opening the window. Gosh, I'm the opposite because I'm always uh, cold. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's the thing about people with disabilities. We're all really different. And everybody's going to have their own answers to this. I realize I'm a visual artist and many people who listen to the program have visual issues and aren't able to engage in that kind of creativity. But there's so many other ways to harness our creativity. Think about others. And when we think about others, we, we kind of get distracted out of our own issues with things. And, and also, I think talking about things with people and how we feel is important. Absolutely. Hey, Anne, thank you for doing some of that with me this morning. Have a great holiday season and talk to you in the new year. That sounds great, Dave. Like, happy holidays to everybody at AMI and all the listeners. And hopefully everybody has a healthy and stress-free Christmas or mm -hmm. holiday, whatever you celebrate. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I'll see Anne. you next. I'll see you next year. See you in 2024, <laughs> a brand new year. Yeah. That's Anne Camosi, a disability rights advocate in Nova Scotia. Coming up in 60 seconds, Alex Smythe will have the weather report of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minutes. Canada's main stock index eked out a gain yesterday on strength in the energy and base metals sectors. Toronto's TSX index added four points to close at 20,036. New York's Dow Jones average gained 83 points and the Nasdaq rose 40. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index lost 87 points. The February gold contract gained 27.20 yesterday to just over $2,060 US an ounce. And our dollar is trading overseas this morning a little higher 
at 73.67 cents U.S. TC Energy Corporation says history has been made by finishing Canada's first pipeline to the West Coast in over 70 years. The coastal gas link pipeline that stretches across northern B.C. is mechanically complete now, just ahead of the company's year-end deadline. Mechanical completion means the end of construction, successful hydro testing of the full 670-kilometer line, and engineering reviews. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. Let's go from business to weather with Alex Smythe. Alex, oftentimes it's a weather story of the day or sort of a big picture in a region. You've got the big, big, big weather picture today. Yeah, Dave, we are looking at Canada's winter forecast for this upcoming season. As folks may be aware of, we are currently in the grips of uh, El Nino um, kind of pattern or uh, span that uh, uh, we are going to be feeling the effects of for the next little while within Canada and North America. As a result, this year's El Nino pattern is actually said to be one of the strongest on record. It will have a huge impact on how we experience winter across this country. So typically, when you have an El Nino pattern, it results in milder weather. Now, that means that will be warmer conditions, but doesn't mean it's going to be an end of snow. So don't start thinking you're avoiding snow this winter season. Due to the dominating pattern that is in the Pacific, it may cause really volatile and unusual patterns to pop up throughout the winter season. So looking across the country right now, there's going to be some patterns that will emerge. So precipitation, if we explore that, it's going to be below normal on the western side of the country, so BC, Alberta, and uh, parts of uh, Quebec and Ontario as well. But once you look at Manitoba, Western Ontario, uh, Western Ontario, the territories, and the Atlantic region, expect to see around normal precipitation for this time of year. And so this is kind of the big question now for as we move into New Year, what is January and February going to look like with these volatile patterns due to the El Nino situation in the Pacific? The questions are still there. We don't have a clear picture yet. December is going to be warmer, less precipitation, but come January, February, it may be that we get stretches of cold or it kind of caps in and we get locked into those cold, frigid temperatures. Some still needs to be seen, but consider this. Warmer than normal uh, conditions, and depending on your location, you may have a bit less snow to shovel come January and February. Dave. All right, there you go. If, and if that's not the case, I'm holding you personally responsible for this, Alex. That's, that, that's, that's fair. That's what the, the role of the weatherman is. Just take all the blame for percentages and, and chances of precipitation. Oh, my gosh. That's Alex Smythe at the Weather Desk coming up after the break. Assiniboine Park Zoo in Winnipeg will be turning their grounds into a winter wonderland. Community reporter Derek Lackey will tell you about it. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. 
Winnipeg's Assiniboine Park Zoo is converting their grounds into a winter wonderland. And this is more than just some cool holiday lights. There's going to be fire pits, sweet treats, and oh, so much more. Community reporter Derek Lackey has more details. Hey, good morning, Derek. Oh, do we have Derek's audio pulled up there, guys? Oh, is Derek's uh, Skype frozen? Hello, Derek. Derek, hello. Hello, Derek. Derek, hello. Okay, let's go over to camera number one, and why don't we do this? Why don't we head over to Tech Trends to sort out some of these technical details? So in today's edition of Tech Trends, Mike Dubusky is going to tell you all about some concerns being raised about toxicity and hate speech in the online gaming space. Paul Barrett is the deputy director of NYU's Center for Business and Human Rights. He says there's a reason that gamers are being targeted. The features of these sites are such that they are particularly useful to people who would happen to spread bad ideas or try to recruit people into conspiracies. Occasionally, the games themselves can contain content designed to radicalize. Meanwhile, gaming live streaming platforms like Discord and Twitch say they've banned users, worked with law enforcement, and are developing new technologies to crack down on hateful content. But Barrett says there's more to be done. We need regulation, greater publicity, and public understanding about what's going on as the potential to create pressure on the companies to do what they should be doing on their own. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Nice of you to fill a little time there while we re-engaged contact with community reporter Derek Lackey in Winnipeg, Manitoba, talking all about the Assiniboine Park Zoo in their winter wonderland. So, Derek, let's see if we've got you loud and clear this time. I'm here, Dave. You got me good? Ah, We got you loud and clear, Derek. So, the event is called Zoo Lights. Why do you think this event brings so much magic to the park? I think for a lot of the children and a lot of the individuals that um, come out to this, it's not only because it's being held at our zoo. So a lot of the kids are wondering if there's going to be any of the animals outside, maybe, maybe the polar bears, but obviously <laughs> not the other animals. But, um, you know, I, I think for the kids, the zoo is just a magical place to begin with. And when you're talking about a venue as large as the Point Park Zoo, so you're talking over two kilometers of pathways to walk and stuff. And the fact that they light up the entire zoo really, um, really creates some magic for the holiday season and and thinking about how much could actually be there and the entertainment uh, i i think i think it starts alone with the magic of the fact that it's at the zoo and then once you filter in the fact that it's going to be lit up for the holiday season it just brings a whole new kind of magic to the season now the park is considering not just the general population there're going to be some specialized theme nights including a sensory night so what are some of the accommodations the park is putting forward here to make this a more inclusive opportunity for people in the city you know Dave I'm I'm really loving the fact that um 
these different uh, different sensory issues that we're finding more and more these days and that are becoming more prominent are being addressed appropriately and um, being included uh, in a lot of these events. So for the sensory night, we can expect a lot of um, lower uh, volume on the on the music. So it's not overstimulating for the little guys um, that do have these sensory issues. Strobe lights will be turned off as to not create any any triggers or issues, uh, whether it's it's uh, like a, a cerebral palsy or or a seizure issue, and as well, we can expect um, a lot less of the population. So we can expect only a fifty percent capacity on the zoo in order to try and maintain a healthier and more um, welcoming environment for those individuals with those sensory issues. What about some other general accessibility considerations? Maybe somebody doesn't feel the need to go to the sensory night, for example, but what are some of the broader accessibility uh, accommodations or considerations that somebody should take into account before they head out to the park? Well, you know, definitely you're, you're going to be outside. So obviously you're you're dressing up and you're approaching a, a very large venue Um and you know washrooms are always a concern so kind of being able to contact ahead of time and uh you know i i usually call and find out hey what kind of accessibility do you have do you have uh lots of volunteers in order to help out with this do you have any um anyone that can be around to help me out if i decide to go alone uh where are the washrooms located so it's usually good to do a little bit of research before you head out to these venues uh including you know your bus travel okay from from bus routing is there any direct uh drop-offs available is there another way to get there so uh, the winnipeg um, zoo here is just absolutely phenomenal they have great uh, a number of volunteers out and available to help out um, they're always around and located. Uh, you can get um, a, a guided tour if you needed to, um, but um, the Winnipeg Zoo is just all around. It's been complete. It's very accessible. Yeah, I always think about that as pre-orientation. If I know I'm going to a space that even if I've got some familiarity with, it's always a good reminder. Hey, where is the bus stop? Where? What is the general layout of the space? It's one of those things, Derek, that allows me to have peace of mind before I go somewhere. It, it's a, it, it is, yeah. I'm trying to, trying to get the layout of the zoo Um it, it is very twisty turny, so it would be very hard uh, in order to try and um, kind of get a layout. And, and meanwhile, they've created a Celtic knot in your in your mind as they're trying to explain it to you. So um, being able to, um, you know, they have lots of volunteers posted at, at different sections and around where you can gain that, you know, like, where can I go from here? What's over here? What's available? Um, where should I head to next? Yeah. And being able to get a lot of that help. That's it's always phenomenal, whether it's summer or winter. Lots of volunteers out. Plan of attack is always a good idea. Assiniboinepark.ca to learn more. A-S-S-I-N-I-B-O-I-N-E park.ca. Assiniboinepark.ca. And uh, Zoo Lights runs every night from now until January the 7th with that special sensory night taking place on Wednesday, December the 6th. So just a couple days away from uh, that one. Uh, for that particular for that particular event. Okay, Derek, let's switch over to the world of music. Winnipeg's own Fred Penner is returning to the Burton Cummings Theatre. It's an all-ages concert for the season. It's going to be held Sunday, December the 17th at 3 p.m. Central Time. 
Just uh, what's the general vibe at a Fred Penner concert? Party, fun, um, good times. Uh, it, it's Fred Penner. I mean, there's not much you can say that would be uh, other other than a good time and uh, a sing along and and happy and fun and light. Uh, about Fred Penner. I mean, uh, I remember growing up watching his show and he's pulling his guitar bag out of the inside of a trunk of a tree before he head off and he'd start <laughs> his music. And, and you know, the cat came back, that synonymous song with Fred Penner that everyone knew about this crazy little cat in the cartoon. So it's uh, it's very exciting to hear that he's back yet again. I mean, he's been doing this for well over 50 years, and he is just a phenomenal, phenomenal entertainer. He addresses so many different facets of uh, society and with his round from music to video to education. It's just an all-around awesome uh, feeling whenever uh, Fred Penner comes around. I'm very excited to, and interested in taking uh, Nino out to come and see him play. What about the theater itself? What are some of the considerations around the Burton Cummings Theater? So the Burton Cummings Theater is very accessible. Um, the location is a little harder to get to, but there is lots of bus routing very close by. Uh, so it is very accessible in that sense. Uh, it is a very nice theater that has lots of washrooms as well as uh, theater staff in order to help you and it gets you to your appropriate seating and to make sure that you can. I mean, I used to go to concerts there all the time, uh, even when I was sighted and they would still help you to your seat so it is very accessible lots of um you know places for relief uh, as well as uh, a little bit of uh, nourishment if you need some some snacks or something to drink and uh, to get there very easy to do uh definitely do your orientation beforehand but lots of uh winnipeg transit busing very close by love it hey derek thank you for this today have a great holiday season with the family talk to you in 2024 Sounds great, Dave. Happy holidays to you, too. Thank you very much. That is Winnipeg community reporter Derek Lackey. Laura Bain is stopping by with the entertainment report. Laura, today you've got something where the world of uh, fiction meets reality competition television. Yeah, that's right. So I'm talking about uh, the Netflix reality show Squid Game. So um, very popular for anyone who's not familiar. It's a reality show spinoff based on the South Korean made show Squid Game, which came out in 2021. Um, And, you know, that was Netflix's most watched show of all time, apparently. So in the original fictional show, um, (laughs) Financially uh, Desperate Characters, enter a, uh, like a secret competition where they play children's games like red light, green light for the chance to win a big cash prize. But the consequences of being eliminated from the games are that they are killed. Mm-hmm. So the reality show spinoff, it's kind of the same idea, except fortunately the contestants, they just get eliminated from the show when they uh, don't win the games. So some have called the show unethical because of the stressful conditions that the contestants are put under. Um, And it's been reported that at least two contestants are threatening legal action against the show for alleged injuries that they experienced during the filming. 
Dave, I, I think that you watch the show, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on whether it's good entertainment or if it's unethical, <laughs> or maybe it's a little bit of both. Well, well I've watched I've watched uh, the the series Squid Game, and then I've watched just a smidge here and there of the Squid Game reality show, the the challenge. It actually only came across my later, radar last weekend when I was watching something. Uh, it was probably football, considering it was the weekends, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I watched a couple episodes. Episodes and I was like, yeah, this is, this is okay. Not really for me. I, I do like physical competition reality TV shows because at least it's not as um, contrived as, say, your standard reality TV show. This one didn't really do it for me, though. But I do want to say this. Whoever the executive at Netflix who thought this up is should get a big promotion. Because although I don't think it's for me, what a great way to cross-promote quality intellectual property with low-cost reality TV content. Big bonus in the Christmas envelope for that executive. Do you think you'll keep hitting play? Yeah, that's a good question. And honestly, I don't completely know the... From everything I heard, I thought this show is not going to be my jam. So I kind of made a conscious effort um, not to watch it. I... I heard that um, Squid Game surpassed Bridgerton as the most watched show at the time. And I, I, it got me thinking that maybe there's like Bridgerton people and maybe there's Squid Game people. <laughs> yeah. And I am perhaps a, a Bridgerton person. Um, but what I did appreciate about the original show, which I watched an episode last night, was um, the anti-capitalist social commentary. Um, and with the reality show, which I also checked out an episode and a half last night, I felt like... Like, you know, it sort of embodied everything that the original show was critiquing. And there yes. seemed to be a, yes. a bit of a lack of awareness on the part of the contestants that that was what was happening. That was a little bit strange. I didn't really enjoy watching how stressed out some of the contestants were in episode one. One of the contestants is like sick to their stomach because they're so stressed out. Um Absolutely. People do enter these competitions voluntarily. At the same time, I feel like maybe it, that's questionable when people are financially strapped, which I think a lot of contestants in the reality show, we do get the sense that they're financially strapped. And in that way, it kind of mirrors the drama in this really like upsetting way. Yeah, like who can, who can take off uh, six to twelve six to twelve weeks of work for these reality shows if they're not necessarily in a financially odd position or the opposite, a very privileged position who can just go do as they please? But I do think I'm going to use an expression that I used uh, on the show yesterday, talking about some of the risks in playing soccer with some new data that came out about head injuries in soccer. I do think that if you sign up to play Squid Game, the reality show, or sign up for American Ninja Warrior, or sign Sign up for wipeouts, then there's sort of an informed consent that like something bad might happen to you here. Yeah, maybe that's fair enough. I did actually think about the show Wipeout as well, because I thought, well, sure, if I signed up for this, I might think that they would have relatively humane conditions and I wouldn't experience injury. And then I thought, well, do I, though? Like with the <laughs> show like Wipeout, like you're I'm watching that thinking, oh, people are getting injured. So I don't know. But new episodes of Squid Game were released today, episodes six through nine. It's the number one watch show right now. <laughs> the, game, the, the challenge, I should say. So, um, you know, I'm sure lots of people will be watching that. 
Hey, Laura, I'm so appreciative that you're on top of these trends, even ones that might not be Bridgerton. I appreciate that you're willing to go outside your comfort zone for good content and conversation with me. I mean, it's not that I, you know, I think as someone who does social work, like that's what I'm, you know, studying in school. I just spend all of my time kind of reading and learning about like economic oppression and, and inequality. So I just need a little bit of escapism in my in my watching. So uh, yeah, happy to take one for the team on this. I'm always, always happy that you're, uh, you're, you're in the trenches for it. Laura, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thanks, Dave. That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report coming up after the break. Public sector strikes in Quebec continue. I'll have the latest in the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv, also in beautiful streaming audio at amiplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. You are you. It's Wednesday, November the 29th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the Access Now app is expanding their presence through a new partnership with RT04. Founder Mayan Ziv will give you the details And protests that caused a shutdown in the Saskatchewan legislature have prompted security changes. Journalist John Lepke will give you the latest. But the hour begins with the regional news updates. Starting in British Columbia, BC's Auditor General says he continues to have problems with the way the province keeps its books. Michael Pickup says the province does not record the money it receives for major projects correctly. It also is not including some gaming revenue. Pickup explains the implications. It is important because economic decisions depend on the best financial information available. The concerns we have raised point to things that could limit the province's ability to use this information to make these decisions. This is the 16th time Pickup's office has qualified its audit report. Over to the prairies, the Saskatchewan government is using the Saskatchewan First Act to review the federal government's proposed clean electricity regulations. The federal regulations would require provinces to work toward an emissions-free electricity grid by 2035. Justice Minister Brahman Eyre says the province wants to get a better understanding of the economic impact. It's creating investor uncertainty. It is creating broader uncertainty. But we need to get a sense, a nuanced, detailed sense of what these policies mean for the economy of Saskatchewan. And over to Ontario, the Ontario government will release its business case for moving the Ontario Science Centre today. Alison Jones looks ahead. When Premier Doug Ford announced updates in April to his plans to redevelop Ontario Place, it included moving the Science Centre, and Infrastructure Minister Kinga Surma cited a business case analysis as justification. She said the Science Centre's current building is in disrepair, and the analysis showed it would be less expensive to move it downtown rather than rebuild it at the current location. Seven months later, it's set to be made public. 
The planned new Science Centre at Ontario Place will be half the size of the current one, though the government says there will be more exhibition space. Alison Jones, The Canadian Press, Toronto. And finally in Quebec, four Quebec public sector unions say they will strike for a week in December in an effort to accelerate contract negotiations. Emily Javesky has more. The four unions are negotiating together as a common front and say their 420,000 members will walk off the job from December 8th to 14th if a deal isn't reached before then. The unions represent the majority of Quebec's elementary and high school teachers, as well as education support staff and a range of workers in the healthcare system. The workers have gone on brief strikes earlier this month, but the unions say next month's temporary strike will be the last before their members begin an unlimited strike. Emily Jovesky, the Canadian Press. Thank you very much, Emily. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Alrighty, so the group stage of the NBA, National Basketball Association, in-season tournament has wrapped up and the quarterfinals are set. The Toronto Raptors failed to qualify after dropping a contest to the Brooklyn Nets last night. Maybe we should call them the Toronto Craptors, but that's a different story for a different day. Mm -hmm. Who did make the quarterfinals? The Boston Celtics and Indiana Pacers, the New Orleans Pelicans and the Sacramento Kings, the New York Knicks and the Milwaukee Bucks, and the L.A. Lakers and Phoenix Suns. A little bit of context here just before we bring in Brock for some thoughts. All the group stage games and the quarterfinals count in the regular season standings. The semifinals and the finals do not. The winning team gets a big cash Prize. Well, at least big for people like me and Brock. Maybe not for, uh, for, for NBA players. Only a couple million bucks on the line for the actual players. So, Brock, I'm someone who's in support of this tournament because it adds a little bit of urgency or drama or flavor to what would otherwise be pretty meaningless regular season games in a long season. But you're not wild about the format. Uh, no, and you alluded to it, and I... And... I'm glad you alluded because I thought the semifinal was also discluded from the uh, stats. No, you're right. So the semifinals and the finals do not. The final four do not count. The quarterfinals do count in the regular season standings. Yeah. And to me, that's that's weird. Like, I, I, you know, if it's going to count, why are we not making them count in the semifinal and final? Like, it's just kind of bizarre. I I do like the idea of the tournament. I first of all, I love the look of all the all the uh, the courts. Every team has sort of individualized uh, tournament courts that they have, and I love the look. I do love the fact that the tournament is there because if you're going to have a a mediocre tournament uh, or, or, or sorry a mediocre regular season, maybe the tournament is something that you can do better at. I was kind of hoping the Toronto Raptors would be in that in that frame, but apparently not. They got eliminated. I, I, I'm game for it. I just don't love the format of sometimes the points count and sometimes they don't. What are your thoughts well, on for, it? For what it's worth, at least there's clarity on when the, when the games do count to the regular season standings and when they don't. This was established with the tournament in its inception this summer. It's been explained ad nauseum on the broadcasts during the games. I, 
I, I think it actually just boils down to a scheduling issue, that it's one thing to set up one extra rescheduled NBA game, because that's what's happening here with the quarterfinals, right? You're getting these four, uh, four quarterfinal games where those games are being put together, and then the other 22, 24 teams in the league are going to have one extra regular season game rescheduled as a result. I think if you started trying to do that with the semifinals and the finals, at that point it becomes a total quagmire of trying to reorganize like hundreds of games. So I think at a certain point it was just a logistical compromise they had to make, making the one thing they're doing during the semifinals and the finals is they're clearing out the rest of the schedule. So it's going to be so clear on that Friday night and that Sunday afternoon afternoon this is the semis and this is the finals and there's no other nba basketball to worry about right and i and i guess the way that you just described it there makes sense and i knew there had to have been a logistical reason why they were doing it i just think if you look at it and say why is this and you just look at you know points and games count towards this up to this point you kind of look at it and go okay that's weird but but when you get it explained yeah it makes sense yeah and there is a reason to why these professional leagues do the things they do i i do like the fact that sometimes you know when you look at the world cup of hockey that that's been done in the nhl they did it at a time where the regular season wasn't a thing they did it at a totally separate time i, I understand why you would do that too but in this case I think you're going to have a harder time convincing players, hey, go play in a tournament, uh, you know, before the season or after. I think this is the best kind of mix to say, we're going to do this and we're going to do this all together. And I'm game for it. I wasn't Brock, Brock, because the NBA is a real sport, like because the NBA is a real league governing a real sport, they actually have their players going to the Olympics, unlike the losers at the NHL. Right. (laughs) Yes, I, I agree. And I agree totally with the, sediment that the uh, losers of the NHL because to me that's what it is and they need to go uh, back to the Olympics and that's just where we are but yeah, yeah when, when the play-in tournament first was uh, conceptualized I thought to myself yeah I don't love it but then I started watching it and thought yeah okay I can, I can get on board with this so yeah yeah now that I kind of get it and understand it, it yeah it makes sense to me I, I probably land somewhere in the middle when it really comes down to it Brock I like it did not it did not make me any more excited for a Friday night NBA game or a Tuesday night NBA game than I already would have been. I, I think I've said to you a couple times here the last couple months, I'm I'm on kind of a sports overload right here, and the NBA just hasn't worked its way fully into my focus yet. Maybe when football's over, we can start worrying about basketball. <laughs> we can start worrying yeah. about basketball again, but I think it's worth even just noting the broader conversation here is basketball probably just needs a shorter regular season, as does hockey. Hockey. When you get to 80-something games during the course of a season, it's just way too much. So anything you can do to break the monotony is ultimately a good idea. But really and truly, they're trying to borrow the soccer model of whether it be the FA Cup in England or where teams from all different tiers can compete in the tournament or the UEFA Champions League, where the best teams from all across Europe come together, like the best club teams from all across Europe come together for a massive tournament. I think when you're just looking at the same teams in different uniforms or different courts, it doesn't quite have that same appeal. That said, if they could find some way to bring in a couple of the top European club basketball teams, if they could bring in some of the American uniforms, 
university college basketball teams, maybe even a couple of the Canadian college basketball teams or teams from the CEBL, the, the Canadian Basketball League, I think there would be something there that would offer a uniqueness that more mod, uh, more models the European soccer model that might not lead to as competitive basketball, but might make for more compelling storylines. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and you were talking about shorter seasons. And, uh, you know, the Major League Baseball really needs a shorter season. Like you could go you could go across the board here and say that everyone needs a everybody season. but football. Football needs a longer season. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, is we get to this point in all the seasons where it's like, OK, you're into February and we're, we're doing the same thing. The, you know, ex Canadian team in the NHL is playing another team and it's just another game and it's whatever. And you get to that point where it just gets tired. And then we get reloaded when we get closer to the playoffs because it's like, well, now we're looking at standing. Yeah, now it matters. Matching a, yeah. And so there's that period of time where it's like nobody cares about what's going on in the middle of the season, you know, and I, I just think everybody could use a little bit of a, a shave off. And I think you're right. I think that's why the NBA tried to do with the NBA tournament was just give something different yeah. and a different look. But I do think that they'll make a little bit of tinkers here and there if they proceed to do it again, you know, in the future, which I imagine they will, but it, everything deserves a little bit of tinkering. We'll see. They'll get it right eventually, and uh, it'll all work out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, Brock, overtime today. Got to get out of here. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk. Coming up next, protests that caused a shutdown at the Saskatchewan legislature last week prompted security changes. Journalist John Lepke will give you the latest on this story. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. back it's now with dave brown on ami tv protests disrupted proceedings in saskatchewan's legislature last week the disruption led to temporary security changes those in favor of the measures say it helps protect mlas those against it argue it limits free speech there's a lot to this story journalist john lepke can lend a hand in unpacking it hey good morning john good morning dave John, it's almost hard to say where the conversation should begin, but let's just start with the changes themselves. What are the temporary changes that have been put in place at Saskatchewan's legislature? Yeah, so after the protests, uh, those were Monday last week, uh, the legislative unit that, that handles security, which was a change that was made a year before, um, has instituted some changes that are temporary up until tomorrow and, and then will be revisited. And those are that the number of people allowed in the gallery is limited. There is no walk-in traffic. And perhaps most contentiously, those who do attend to sit in the gallery have to give their name and address. Okay, so those are the uh, policies in place there. What has the reaction been to these temporary changes, as you say, that may be revisited and kept in place uh, later this week? Yeah, I think unsurprisingly, those who who agree with the protests and what they stand for, those protests um, 
protesting uh, against the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas, um, are saying that this is a limiting of freedom of speech. And, and that's certainly the position that the NDP, who weren't uh, terrifically enthused about the protests, some of them, um, have taken. Uh, the conserv the sorry, the Sask Party, who do trend conservative, but I don't want to confuse listeners. The Sask Party um, have instigated an investigation as well, um, alleging that the uh, the NDP were uh, aiding and abetting uh, this protest. And so we'll see how that how that committee filters out as well. What do you think of the balance is here, John? Here's where you can take the journalist cap off a little bit and talk more broadly about like what's at issue, which is access to the public to their politicians. What do you think the balance is here? Because I think that when people sort of pinpoint in on the nature of this protest being conflict in the Middle East, they'll be able to draw their party lines. But I'm sure uh, mm -hmm. some of that may be inversed if it was about opposing vaccine mandates or pick your flashpoint issue. People are always going to say my free speech is limited when what they want to say is being uh, is being limited. But then on the flip side, they might they might uh, change their mind if they politically disagree with the nature of the protest. So what is the str the, the, the balance here like an actual objective balance between safety of politicians and public's access to politicians. Mm -hmm. I'm going to borrow here from, and I may have said this on air for, for a different story, but a, a term that I learned around anti-racist education when I was in my, my first degree in university, which was a while ago, but it was about the fundamental difference between people feeling uncomfortable and unsafe. And I think that's something that we really need to look at in the legislature. I mean, if you sit in any legislature, the Saskatchewan legislature, uh, I've sat in the in the British legislature as a, an audience member, and it's the same the same yelling and throwing of of um, of vitriol uh, as you can call it. And so I think it certainly I certainly trend towards the why are we limiting people's ability to speak up, particularly often when we're talking about mart. You know, it takes a heck of a lot for marginalized folks, uh, often racialized folks in the terms of this conflict to show up at the legislature and to just say ceasefire now over and over until um, and, and I say that as a um a vote and not a vote in their favor, but a sort of a, a a compliment of what they were doing, right? Sometimes it's the simplest actions that make the most change. Um, and so I don't think any action that creates limits on free speech is good. And I, I think that the um, the ruling party in this case uh, needs to take a look at why they feel uncomfortable being told by their constituents that their constituents want a ceasefire. Yeah, I like I like the way you frame that comfort versus safety. Now, again, there's not necessarily an objective line that you can draw on that one, but I'll I'll, I'll cite an example that's going to come up on the news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joy Gupta later this week. I'm going to be talking about some of the new security measures at Vancouver's City Hall, where there's going to be enhanced screening of anybody entering a council meeting, but even working their way around some of the halls. And I think to the time that I lived in Ottawa and did spend quite a bit of time at City Hall. That was kind of a wonderful place where you could have FaceTime with your local elected official in the hall. And the more we move away from that as a culture, as a society, I see that as a negative, but I do put the onus on individuals when you talk to your elected officials, you have to act like you have some sense. Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it. I mentioned earlier that they've, you know, struck a, a 
committee for for an investigation around this protest and and NDP's role in it. And uh, there was some some consternation amongst members. Uh, the speaker asking uh, the person who brought it forward to to remove some sentences around some accusations toward the NDP. But one of the ways in which that was phrased was uh, they phrased the protest as an occupation. And when we when we're phrasing uh, protest as an occupation, when it's a number of people speaking loudly in front of their representatives who they themselves speak uh, loudly, to put it kindly, in front of each other regularly. It's really a question of which voices do you want to hear? And and every legislature is, is quite selective. Uh, the UCP wearing earplugs at one point uh, a few years ago. You know, these these things come up over and over again. But but I'm with you that when we lose that face time, we lose the willingness to listen to our constituents. We lose the the political will. And then that turns into issues at the, at the polls. And it's it's a bit cyclical. John, thank you for some perspective on this. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's John Lepke, freelance journalist based in Saskatchewan. Coming up next, the Access Now app is expanding their presence through a new partnership with RTO4. Founder Mayan Ziv gives you the details. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Access Now is expanding their presence through a new partnership with Regional Tourism Organization 4. The RTO4 covers four regions in Ontario, Huron County, Perth County, the Waterloo, Waterloo Region, and Wellington County. Access Now is a crowdsourced app that allows users to search for nearby places that are accessible and it allows users to input their experiences with accessibility in public spaces like stores and restaurants. The data includes information pertaining to mobility, sensory, cognitive, auditory, and visual accessibility. Mayanziv has more details on the new partnership and what it means moving forward. Mayan is the founder and CEO of Access Now. Mayan, so great to chat with you this morning. Thank you for making a little bit of time. Hi, Dave. So a huge part of this collaboration is done through uh, what you call a map mission. This is a new expression to me. What's a map mission? So a map mission is kind of like an accessibility scavenger hunt. The idea is really to task people with searching for information about accessibility in their own neighborhoods. So armed with the Access Now app, people go out into their own streets and look at coffee shops, restaurants, offices, parks, you name it, and start to actually review the information that they come across. So the idea is for us by the end of a map mission to come away with a lot more rich insight about the types of accessibility that we can expect to see at places in that neighborhood. So going a bit deeper into this individual partnership, what came out of the map mission with RTO4? So we've been running map missions at Access Now for years, like really from the very beginning. The idea behind map missions were really to kind of create some growth hacking. So ways to get information on the Access Now app so that people can find better insights about accessibility. And fast forward to today, uh, organizations like RTO4 
are leveraging map missions to also engage their community and their stakeholders. And I think that's a really, really cool kind of ex uh, example of what we can do when we partner. It's really providing people with the opportunity to be their own agents of change, share information about accessibility in their own neighborhoods, as opposed to waiting around for somebody else to come along and do it. In this map mission, like you said, some of it was very particular and some of it's been ongoing for a long time. How did these regions stack up with a little bit of audit and a little bit of extra eyes? So, you know, it, it's always quite a diverse range of, of insights that we find from places being fully accessible to those that kind of rank in the partially or not accessible category, uh, as well as the insights that are specific to why those places were reviewed as such. So, you know, we saw automatic doors, we saw accessible parking spots, we we look also for digital accessibility of payment systems. There's a whole uh, wide range of different types of features that we prompt people to share, but it's also very much based on people's observed lived experiences. So this isn't an audit. We're not out here to, you know, take measuring tapes and conduct a full end-to-end uh, -end assessment, but really we're inviting people to collect what they observe and, and start the conversation. So I think this was a really healthy engagement. It also provided people with a lot of opportunities to learn more for those that are maybe less familiar with accessibility mm. in their own region. And now hopefully we've created some new allies who can tasked with this new mission, continue to share that good information. Yeah, Mayan, go a little bit deeper onto that side of it because I've always long admired the way that your app works and the way your app leverages that crowdsourcing that's meant to be observational and really be pragmatic in what it puts forward for someone to enhance their experience no matter where they want to go. But when you talk about a broader partnership like this, what's the benefit that the partnership brings to the table beyond just the incredible everyday users that are already contributing to the app success? Really what we're doing here is creating active agency. So, uh, you know, one of my big frustrations with the way that accessibility has kind of not progressed uh, at, at the, the pace that I think and many other uh, accessibility activists have spoken about is that unless people are actually experiencing the barriers or, or leaving their offices and actually witnessing the types of things that we're advocating for, it becomes very difficult to motivate those folks to actually pursue change, uh, to remove those barriers. So the idea behind the work that we do in partnership uh, with organizations like RTO4, uh, corporate partners, municipalities, I mean, it's quite a, a range of different types of people we work with and organizations, but the idea is to give people the power to not only create experiential learning opportunities to generate empathy, but also to provide people with direct access to create change. So it doesn't matter if you know you are just a citizen living in your own community and you want to contribute because you want to raise awareness about barriers that people might not be recording. Uh, or if you know you're at the highest level of government where you can now look at that data across the board and start to see some patterns about you know, where within a community are people facing more barriers or what's going well that we can celebrate and use that as a, as a testimonial for leadership to inspire others to do the mm. same.
In the past, you've described accessibility as a mindset, which I think is a really interesting way to look at it. I was in Montreal, my old hometown, a couple of weeks ago, and I was using the subway system, the metro system, which, to my experience as someone who's legally blind, has always been very kind and very good to me. But I imagine from a wheelchair access point of view, it's quite awful because I went to a number of stations where there was no elevator, no stairs, no escalator, no nothing. And I'm talking about like major core downtown metro stations. And I wonder if maybe that relates at all to that mindset thing, perpetually keeping your eye on things and making observations that might not even necessarily directly relate to my lived experience, but it's an accessibility consideration that I hope people would be mindful of. Yeah, I mean, I I like to say accessibility is a mindset because it really pushes people to think about it beyond compliance. A lot of people consider accessibility to be this thing that you, you know, look down a checklist on after you've made a decision just to make sure that you've covered your bases. And that really is so, so far away from uh, helping people to manifest very um, uh, meaningful senses of accessibility or inclusion. Uh, You know, it's very hard to get to that if you haven't considered accessibility throughout the entire process that you've you know, started your idea, designed your idea, engaged with stakeholders all the way until production and and marketing materials. At every single point along the way, accessibility should really be integrated within the thinking and the development process. So I always like to kind of spark that idea because I think it really helps people to reposition the concept of accessibility. And once you think about accessibility as this open-ended opportunity for exploration, it also helps to generate creativity and innovation. And, you know, I think accessibility does a lot for, for creating new, uh, exciting ways that people engage with the world. And we really have to move away from thinking about it as this like utilitarian toolbox that just solves a problem for, a, you know, a subsection of the population. It's so much more than that. Mm. Access Now started quite humbly as a Toronto-based project. You're now operating in over 107 countries, which is like remarkable and amazing. And I know this question is probably a little bit obvious, but I do want to hear your answer. How are you feeling about that kind of growth with something that you started with such humble origins? Well, you know, Dave, I I never set out to build a company or do anything um, that I was really aware of was happening at the time. I was just really motivated to solve a problem. It was a problem that, you know, I resonated with as a wheelchair user. Accessibility has been something that has always been on my mind. And I just became very frustrated with the fact that there weren't proper solutions that responded to my questions about accessibility. And I think the reason that Access Now has been successful to date is because we've never defined access or been the expert Access Now is owned by the community of people who contribute, which means that accessibility, the way we define it, what we share information about is consistently evolving and growing. And as people engage and say, I want information about lowered counters, or I want information about lighting levels or sound levels, you know, regardless of what people's insights or, or requirements are, our goal is to be able to facilitate that information sharing. And so 
I think that's really why it's been so successful is because it it's really it, it belongs to everyone and and that seems to have resonated with people who for a very long time have felt like they haven't had a voice in the equation. Mayan, to zoom out here even a little bit further, at the core of this show is platforming people with disabilities who are leaders in the field and leaders in the world and giving them a space to share their thoughts and opinions. International Day of Persons with Disabilities is this weekend. What's a closing thought that you would want to leave for businesses and organizations when it comes to inclusion? I'd say that there's nothing too small that can start that spark. Uh, to create really meaningful change. I think a lot of people are afraid to act because they don't want to do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. And specifically business owners I've heard from are always afraid of the risk associated with getting things wrong. The problem though becomes that then they don't do anything. And so, you know, there's the, the opportunity for change happens in that growth, in that trial and error And in that humbleness to invite people who have not traditionally been invited to contribute to have that space to do so. So if you are a person out there thinking, you know, I want to create a change, all it starts with doing is kind of raising your voice and having the confidence to believe that your perspective matters because it does. Mayan, congratulations on all the success with Access Now. Keep up the excellent work. All the best to you. And hopefully you and I get a chance to connect again down the road. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Dave. That's Mayan Ziv, founder and CEO of Access Now. For more information on Access Now, please visit accessnow.com. That's accessnow.com. Coming up after the break. Something interesting happened in the world of aviation. Maybe uh, air travel's getting a smidge more sustainable. Alex Smythe will bring that story to the roundtable. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Only a couple of minutes left in this program, but don't you worry. Live programming hits the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern time as well. Kelly and Ramya back in the mix. Ramya Amuthan is the co-host of that show and is here to offer up a little bit of a preview. Good morning, Ramya. You guys had a busy couple days here. The live show on Monday and then a whole bunch of the crew was hanging around the office yesterday. Yeah, that's right. People slowly dispersed back to their own homes and then hopefully everybody took a nap and are recovered and ready to go today. (laughs) I can't believe it's midweek already, honestly. uh, Like Wednesday came up real fast for you guys. But listen, it was so cool. Listen, I've been working with Grant Hardy for over a decade now, whether it was our Tom Mm -hmm. on AMI this week together or various other machinations over the years on AMI TV. It's so cool that he's part of your family. So I'm always delighted when I get to see Grant and talk to him for a little bit. I know he's coming back for the Christmas party next week, so I'll yeah. get a little more FaceTime with Grant. But Beth Deer, who's also worked for AMI for years and years and years, 
She and I had never been in the same room at the same time until yesterday. Nice. So cool to meet someone who I've had digital conversations with, email conversations with, team meetings with. So cool to finally get to meet Beth Deer yep. in person. And I'm so delighted that she's part of the KR family as well. Us too. And it's nice to kind of squeeze in everything we possibly can, like lunches and dinners and puppy time and all this kind of stuff while everyone's here. And we're getting spoiled because, yeah, we saw each other uh, this week. We'll be seeing each other next week. And then we'll be sad for however many months we're <laughs> not all in the same room together. <laughs> but let's not look ahead to next week too quickly. Mm. Let's look ahead to 2 p.m. Eastern time. What's coming up on the show today? Okay, we're talking uh, about us. Christmas specials, so, you know, holiday movies, holidays TV, whatever you go to, even musical concerts around this time of year for the festivities. Greg David is bringing up all this stuff on our TV talk. Also, there's a new Google geothermal electricity project. It could be announced. I don't even know what that means. Yeah. Um, Anyways. (laughs) A lot of words there. Exactly. It's basically for clean energy. We're going to learn more about it with Mark Phoenix because he's filling in for Bill Shackleton on the buzz. And we have Know Your Rights on a Wednesday with Danielle McLaughlin. So don't get too thrown off. That is if you aren't already with the rest of us. And today she's talking uh, or continuing her discussion on what Canada can and cannot do to support citizens who are traveling abroad. The buzz with Mark doesn't quite have the same ring as the buzz <laughs> with Bill. Maybe like fire stories with Phoenix or something like this. Oh, oh dude, I love that. Yeah. Rising from the fire with Phoenix. I don't know. <laughs> so, I, we're just branded. We're just spitballing here on a Wednesday morning. All you got to be the coffee. voice of that promo, though. Oh, I'll, I'll do what I can. I'll do what I can. If you guys tap me, I'll be, I'll happily be the uh, the voice for y'all. Okay, Ramya, stay right there because Alex Smythe, you want to bring a story here that actually may quasi sort of kind of relate to that geothermal story oh, that uh, Ramya was bringing to the table because you've got a story about sustainable aviation fuel. Yeah, Dave, and this was one that I had kind of on my radar a little bit, but uh, a new uh, kind of ripple to the story uh, happened uh, in the fact that Virgin Airlines has completed the first transatlantic flight using 100% sustainable aviation fuel. Lionel Moisey has the details. It could be the future of eco-friendly travel. A Virgin Atlantic 787 took off from London to New York, powered by 100% sustainable fuel. It's all made from processed cooking oil, animal fat, and corn-based kerosene. Virgin Atlantic owner, billionaire Richard Branson, celebrating the green long-haul flight Tuesday. Well, today, Flight 100 is flying from uh, London to New York on sustainable fuel, and that's a first and very exciting. The fuel cuts emissions but is still pricey, costing nine times more than traditional jet fuel. Lionel Moyes, ABC News, New York. Yeah, so as I kind of mentioned off the top, this comes on the heels of Rolls-Royce conducting their own test in Canada and proving that their current array of engines can manage and use 100% sustainable or SAF fuel in their test. So there's not adaptations or changes needed Mm. to incorporate this fuel. So uh, I wanted to pose this to the round table and, and find out, so Ramya, does this give you hope for a greener aviation future? Yeah, of course, like they, they logistically it is. But did it say that it costs nine times more? <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. think I don't know if my mic was on, but I definitely exclaimed uh, when that came across. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm not sure if I heard that right. And like, you yeah, know, we're already convincing. 
Okay, exactly. So we're already convincing people, you know, to move, to switch. We're trying to get the people with the money to put their money into these alternative means uh, and eco-friendly means. But how do we do that if by the end of it, the fine print is, you know, but it costs nine times more. Like, (laughs) I'm, I'm not... I'm always so excited when I hear the projects and the initiatives and the efforts that um, companies or people and especially like big influencers are putting in and adding to the conversation. But then I think, okay, and is this able to be widely spread? Can we convince the world to get on board? And then you hear the price tags or any other, you know, insert problem here. uh, And then I think like, oh, well, that's discouraging. You, you know what I think about here too, Alex? I, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer on this, right? Because there's maybe there's always this habit of every time there's something that even has a shred of good news in it, people like myself and Ramya, natural cynics, would be like, oh, what yeah. about this? What about the cost? What about that? I would actually argue like if you're still needing to create these uh, corn oils or animal fats, like is that actually sustainable? Yeah. Right? Is this a situation where maybe they've put a branding on this, calling it sustainable aviation fuel, but like you still have to create the resource? Maybe it's more sustainable in the sense that you're not taking dinosaur bones out of the middle of the earth. But 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 Alex, I, I, I'm also with Ramya here a little bit. Like I don't know if this story fills me with utter optimism, mm. even if I can acknowledge that any kind of efficiency in fuel is a good thing. Like, like, do you get what I'm kind of right. putting down there? Yeah. I, don't, I don't mean to punt on your question. No, well, and, and let's, let's dive into, you know, how this is created. You know, this is food waste. These are animal uh, byproducts that they are using to create these fuels. Yes, there's still going to be processing. There's going to be uh, energy expended in creating these fuels. But Dave, as we had talked about earlier this week about things like food waste, this is a way that we could recycle, reuse yeah. certain food waste yeah. in a more sustainable yeah. way. So it's definitely going to be an improvement. It's not 100%, you know, carbon neutral or anything like that yet. But I think it paves the way forward for a greener future, especially when you look at, well, what is one of the biggest contributing factors for emissions? Aviation oh, fuel big time. is one of the worst. Big so time. if you can tackle this issue and really make it into a greener, more sustainable way, at least in in start to begin that process. I think there's there's a lot of positives that can be gained. Now, price aside, obviously it, it's nine times more expensive. This is an issue when you come across whenever there's an innovation or something new, something, sure. a new green energy, like the cost of, you know, batteries for electric vehicles, exorbitantly expensive. But over time, as it becomes more common, more manufacturers start to develop it, that cost will yeah. come you down. Scale so that's market, where I right? you, you scale the market, right? You scale the market. You're no longer paying for research and development. Yeah. That, that's one of the most important parts of the sustainability conversation. And I will perpetually yell from my lungs from rooftops about Amarillo, Texas, that made a big investment in wind farms for that community, which, by the way, is like right in the middle of Texas oil country. They decided to make an investment in green energy, and now utility bills in the community are basically zero because of how much energy is produced by those windmills 
around Amarillo. So so I think part of the sustainability picture does have to relate to cost, like Ramya said. Alex, you're right that over time, scale will bring the price down. But even if that price remains double or triple standard fuel, then you're not truly talking about sustainability Mm -hmm. because it costs so much more. In theory, you're eventually supposed to get that investment paid back to you. And I, I think, Ramya, that's kind of what you're getting at here a little bit, too. Yeah, like there's so many moving parts. The first thing is to try to convince people that this is a viable option. And I think money is what plays, if not the biggest, one of the biggest factors, like top two, um, in how adaptable people are to changes. And I I do have to often remind myself, you know, like I'm a tiny little person in this big, big world and that (laughs) everything is a step by step, right? Like we're not going to go from... baby! (laughs) We're not going to go from zero to sustainable energy overnight. Obviously not that, you know, people have to get on board and and things have to move along. So you're right, Alex, like it's got to start somewhere. It will eventually make a difference. And, you know, hindsight 2020 kind of thing. But uh, regardless, when people make big moves like this and expect big response, you wonder, you know, how many people are just going to lock themselves in, right? The early, the early adopters. Yeah, Alex, Alex, this goes back a little bit to the conversation we had last week about uh, plastic bags and plastic straws and the carbon yeah. tax. Sort of this ongoing chat that says, how much are you actually willing to pay for change? Like, you say, like you, I'm not saying you specifically, I'm saying you more broadly, say, I want to solve the climate issue, but I don't want to do it with my dollars. I'm <laughs> to be really honest with you, Alex, I'm not willing to pay nine times more for my plane ticket uh, for sustainable fuel. Maybe well, the, the long-term like, effect is we'll all stop taking planes and because we can't afford yeah. it. Oh, I, 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 don't think, I don't think aviation is going anywhere. I, I think, <laughs> and it's also too, it's not the ticket itself is going to be nine times more expensive. It's whatever the cost of the oh, fuel the airline, that's in the airline is part will, of that. The, the airline will find effect. a way. The airline oh, yeah. will find a way. <laughs> we will be paying nine times more. See, I, I'm willing to pay more money if I know that the fuel is being used, uh, that's being used is sustainable. I'm not going to pay nine times more for a ticket. How much more? Um, you know, yeah. I, it, if <laughs> let's say it's a transatlantic flight. So you're looking $1,200 or, or 1000 to $1,200 for a standard economy fare. I think that's, that's uh, pretty average. I would go up to 1500 I would go up to maybe 1600 for for a oh. sustainable fuel. I, I'm willing to put in hundreds of dollars, uh, a couple hundred dollars more. A couple hundred bucks. Okay. So, yeah. So, let's say about 50% more for uh, for the cost. Ramya, that's still a little pricey for me, but, I, but I, could, I, could, I could digest that if I had to. It's steep. Like, I say, don't tell me. You know, it's <laughs> against all of my values, but I'd say, don't even tell me that I'm paying two, three, four hundred dollars more. You just got to make it like seamless. Because yeah. if I notice that all of a sudden my flight is five hundred dollars more, I'm gonna, like, excuse me? Yeah, g- going, so. going back to this idea, people will demand transparency, <laughs> yes. and then they're given transparency. Like, I don't want that transparency. I don't want to know. That's too far. That's too far. Oh my gosh. Ramya, thank you for this. Alex, thank you as well. That's all the time for the show today we have to land this plane and prepare for another takeoff tomorrow morning at 9 a.m eastern time until then i'm dave brown reminding you to play safe play fair but don't forget to have some fun
Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.